of you, as we come to this, feel any sense of mild awkwardness at all? Or great awkwardness, just any sense of some awkwardness, yeah. Even... <laughs> so many of you are raising your hands, but not past your belly buttons. <laughs> You're like, that's the kind of awkwardness we feel. Is I'm not even, I can't even show people that I feel awkward, even though everyone's raising their hand. Good demonstration of uh, what we're facing. Okay, so here's our cultural landscape. Let's define some of the terms. Um, in almost, I think it's true that in almost all of human history, a person's sex, as in are they male or female, and a person's gender, are they a man or a woman, have been connected and, until recently. Um, and that's how it's been understood. So it's all, I think it's almost always been understood in the history of humanity that females grow up to be uh, women and males grow up to be men. Um, but today the terms are, that's, that's no longer um, how we speak or think about it in the culture. Um, so let's just go through some terms. Uh, sex, would, it equals male or female. You'll now see on some do uh, documents there's other as an option. Uh, gender equals man or woman. Again, on some documents you'll see other as an option. So the historical view is that males grow to be men. Woman, uh, females grow to be women. Sex is binary. The word binary there means that you're either a male or that you're a female. You would have heard these words. Um, you know, if you're a high school kid, you're like, wow, is Mark explaining this? This is 101. Because any of us who've been in this world for longer than that, uh, this is brand new. Um, this is a little bit different for us. Uh, gender is binary. You're either a man or a woman. Fixed means that your gender is determined by, a by your biological sex. That's the historical view. Um, your gender is determined by your biological sex. Our cultural view um, explains that the biological males can grow to be whatever they choose and biological females can grow up to be whatever they choose. Um, or how, and, and this is largely determined by your feelings. How, what do you feel like? How do you feel? And so sex is non-binary, meaning that males can be females and vice versa. Um, Gender is fluid, men can be women, and vice versa. And then fluid is uh, um, that gender is seen as kind of a social construct. Uh, it's, your, it's your personal choice. You, you can change it as your feelings change. Um, and you can be kind of whatever you want uh, year by year, decade by decade, day by day, moment by moment. Um, and so in this landscape, transgender is someone who experiences a dissonance between the biological sex and their gender identity. So someone who may be born biological female, but as they grow up, they don't feel like a woman. Um, and there's this dissonance between their biology and their gender. And all to say, regardless of what you uh, think at the moment, what we can all agree on is that there's pain in that that there's difficulty, that there's suffering, um, re regardless of where we land with it. That, that has to, and that's where compassion has to begin, is that to be in a body that doesn't feel like your own, you know, um, handicaps, disabilities, uh, you, you want to, your mind, you want to do something, you believe you could do something, but your body holds you back, there's always suffering and some pain. Um, and so there's plenty of room for compassion right there. So then, uh, gender dysphoria, and I'm almost done with the terms. This is the last one, I believe. Uh, gender dysphoria is the very latest diagnostic term used to identify the experience of dissonance between the biological uh, body and your gender. 
And um, so if you, go in, if you go visit your doctor and you're someone who's experiencing this, they'll look in the DSM-5 or psychologist. The DSM-5 is the manual for understanding um, what people are experiencing in terms of mental health. And the DSM-5 will say that this person is experiencing gender dysphoria. And what's interesting here is that uh, this, is, this is a new term. The term used to be gender identity disorder. And when it was gender identity disorder, it was understood that this person is experiencing a problem that needs to be helped uh, with a psychologist or, in other words, they need to um, have some help in how they're thinking about themselves. But the new term, gender dysphoria, uh, the, the, the definition of that is that the dissonance they feel, the disruption they feel, is the problem. Not what they're thinking and, and experiencing, but the, the problem is that they have a problem with what they're thinking and experiencing. And that has to be dealt with. And so the solution, one, is medical. Change them. Change the body so that it fits with your feeling. Uh, unfortunately, you can't change the body, not at a chromosome level. So that's an impossible change for the feeling. The, the solution is no longer... Uh, Let's, let's go to work on why you think that way, how you feel, how could you think differently, how could you grow and you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's not part of it. The, 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 the mind solution is how can we help you to stop feeling bad about the way you feel in terms of the dissonance. Can you see the lack of compassion actually in that realm? It looks like, so that's, that's more on kind of a leftist uh, um, belief system. Can you see how it looks like it's offering freedom? You need to learn to just accept yourself as you are. But it, it really does lack compassion because what if one, someone wants to learn to accept themselves as their biological sex and they realize they're not there yet, but they are trying to get there. And as they go seek help, they're told that the only problem with you is that you're experiencing dysphoria and, and that is that you shouldn't have a problem with the way that you're feeling. It, it lacks quite a bit of compassion and help. Um, and so the only people that are really struggling mentally are the people who are struggling with the dissonance between their biology and their gender. You have a mental issue if you're struggling with that. If you can accept yourself that there's a dissonance there, then you're perfectly fine. So it's, it's a reversal, right? And so... Um, it's, it's quite well spoken about. It's not in my notes. So I don't want to go there too, too much. But it's quite well spoken about that there's always social revolution when, when the normal is turned upside down to the evil and the evil is turned upside down to the normal. And you see that in the mental health area that, that what is normal has been turned into evil and what was once seen as, as wrong is being turned into what's now right. So there's a social revolution. Okay, so how did we get here? Just some history. Uh, Rob Smith has written well about this. Um, we're not going to live here, but just so you can see it. I think this is helpful. It helps me. Um, in some ways, we began in the 60s or 70s. They've done society the worst of harm. But um, something that has some good in it, not all good, but some good in it, is the, the feminist movement. Um, and feminism promoted the idea that your sex is not connected to your role that there, you, uh, there, you shouldn't have kind of male roles and female roles in society. And so kind of part of what it broke down was, was this. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, 
was feminism. Just stay at the top two at the moment. Then we move to uh, sexual orientation as a conversation. So it's not destiny, destiny as in, you're a man, you're a woman, what are you destined for in society? Now it moves to sexual orientation around the homosexual gender. And this picks up on, you know, you know what homosexuality is. Uh, and we change what marriage can be and we change what a family can be. And so you change what a society is. Right? So you've gone from destiny to society to the individual where we are at at the moment, identity. And we talk about transgender where a male can be a woman and, and a woman, a female, well, anyway, you can see that. And there's all these other, other genders as well that you can identify as. And I say that without any sarcasm. I think, again, unfortunately, the conservatives keep saying true things sarcastically and it becomes very unhelpful. But there's these, these other uh, genders. So then, you know, what are the defining features of men and women? They raced. So it's not we're all just equal, it's we're all equal and the same. Where Scripture teaches us we're equal but different, men and women. Then we get to the homosexual agenda as time moves on. And it's not just chronological, but it is, you can kind of go through history and see this. The human mandates erased. So God says to Adam and Eve, Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, lead it together, husband, wife, men, women, work together to take care of this world. And we erase that to go through, through the homosexual agenda. It doesn't matter who's hooking up with who or who you're going to bed with or if you want to be uh, daddy and daddy and mommy and mommy and uh, have your kids. The reality is that daddy and daddy can't make children and mommy and mommy can't make children. Um, and the only way you know, to create these families is... is uh, and adoption is great, but kind of adopt children into these families. And we reshape society, but we lose the mandate. And I don't want to harp on this, but you see the, the, the reality of it. We can call it whatever we want to. We can write new terms. We can change our laws. But it's outside of the creation order, and it doesn't work. And then we get to where we are today, which is you, re you erase humanity. And I don't say this in any sarcasm, but I identify as a unicorn. In other words, what we're erasing is the dignity of humanity. That there's something very, very special about being a man or a woman, a human, as an individual. And now, the only thing that's important is how do you feel? And, and all I'm trying to raise here is there's something much more dignified about you than how you feel right now. There's something more objective than how you feel today. There is a, a, a creator, a God of love, who knows exactly who you are and what you are and what you're going to be, and He gives you supreme dignity, but we erase that. And so you, you kind of see, like, you, you see, what is the goal? The goal is to totally separate man from God. Where God's goal is to totally bring us to Himself. It's a completely separate agenda. So a sermon, just so you know where we are today. A sermon, if we were thinking about gender in terms of the destiny conversation, uh, and we were doing a sermon that was kind of speaking into a feminist conversation, we'd be talking about gender roles. So you have like Wayne Grudem's textbook on manhood and womanhood. And you've got like a library full of books and sermons and the, over the last like four or five decades have been preached about this conversation. That's not what we're thinking about today, but that's the gender conversation if we're thinking about that. If we're thinking about marriage, the family, society, the homosexual agenda, 
then the sermon's going to be on marriage and family and how God has designed it, destined it, made it to be. And we've spoken about that. We spoke about that when we were voting about around the marriage law, marriage equality. We spoke about that because the marriage equality law was landed there in, in that column. That's what the conversation was. But today's conversation, the, the most kind of highlighted one, you know, in our schools, in our universities, in our workplaces, the hot topic, the thing I've been told by at least three or four people this week is, uh, you're very brave to be going there. I don't know why you're going there. And the reason they're saying that is because when I said, if you feel any awkwardness, you all went like that. And the reason I probably haven't slept for three or four nights very well is this is the topic. And it, the sermon's on your personal identity, who you are, what you are. And so the text stays the same. The text is Genesis 1, creation. What did God make? How did he make it? Revelation 21, Jesus brings a new heaven and new earth. He's going to restore it all. We're somewhere in between. And, and while we're not going to open up those texts and go there, you, I'm just giving you the landmarks, you can go there yourself, is we have to figure out where we are and how we tie ourselves into this. Our foundation hasn't changed. God has created us with intention. And our future hope hasn't changed. Jesus is restoring all things. And so how do we point ourselves that direction? All right. Thanks, Brian. Um, Brian, you're amazing. He's got 32 slides, and he's, he's, he's just the man. Um, okay, so the next slide, please, Brian, is um, here's just a couple of other bits and pieces to play into it. You have, we've had in our culture the relativistic ethic. Everything's relative. You've heard about that. You hear things like, uh, you do you. Live your truth. Don't impose your way on me. So that's Australian society is that way. I've only lived here 11, 12 years, but, but I see it. Do you see it if you've lived here your whole life? Australians born and raised here, do you see, do you, do you see that? Have you, do you recognize that? No absolute truth. Your truth is truth. Well, there is absolute truth. It's yours. There's no absolute uh, truth for all of us. So there's a relativistic ethic. Then there's individualism that has come in, which is non-judgmentalism. You're not allowed to tell someone else they're wrong about anything. You can think it. You can believe it. But you can't impose it. And you better be quiet about it. Um, so someone has said the only sin is judging someone else's choices. That's the society we live in. right? That cuts against scripture where it says if you see your brother in sin, go, go to them and warn them. If you don't, their sin's on your hands. You know, so Jesus says go engage with, you, with each other. Help each other. Warn each other. Uh, pick each other up. Stir each other up towards godliness. But our cultural ethic says it's a sin if you tell someone else what they're doing is wrong. Um, sexual revolution, that's where we got feminism from largely. If it feels right, go for it. So free sex. This is then free sex turned into industrialized contraceptives because if, you, if sex was going to be whoever you want to take to bed all the time, you needed some sort of way of stopping children being made. And then abortion was then soon legalized after that because it didn't necessarily work. In other words without the kind of sexual revolution um, agenda, we probably wouldn't have the abortion laws that we have. And then we've lived in Gnosticism. If you've, if you've lived in Australia, you have lived in Gnosticism. It's our cultural religion. So even though Australia sees itself as kind of secular, not religious, you can be religious if you want. Australia is, the cultural religion is Gnosticism. And so there's this tension in Gnosticism between our real selves and our material selves. And there's this constant pull away that your material self has no value. Don't worry about it. Your real self is how you feel, what you want, and that's what you should go after. 
And so it's very easy in our culture to say to anyone who says, you know, I want to change my gender, to go, go for it. That's a Gnostic religious belief. Or that's, you know, any kind of um, Buddhism flourishes in our context. Why? Because there's a separation of the material world from the real world. You need to be divorced from your body so that you can experience this utopia, which is completely the opposite of what Jesus tells us, which is we will fully find ourselves in Him, raised in bodily form, set free from sin and death. Completely different. Your material body has great value. Um, Gnosticism versus creation and Christianity. Okay, so I think you're understanding kind of where we're at, our, our cultural landscape. Um, Andrew Walker says this, there are only two sins left in the world, to judge someone else and to fail to fulfill your desires. Those are the only two sins. And you see how they're the same thing. The one is uh, what I can do to you. I cannot stop you from doing anything. And the other is that you better not stop yourself from doing anything. Right? And so who is the holy supreme God in this? That is not a comforting thought. Anyone who's had a baby, and I apologize to anyone who's single here, you know, you are as valuable uh, um, than anyone who's married. But anyone who's had a baby has gone to a hospital, they've given birth, um, or the wife's given birth, the husband's been there, and then a day or six hours later, in Australia, six hours is the soonest, but a day later, they say you can go home. Have you ever felt like, hold on a second, to get a high school diploma, I had like 13 years of school. <laughs> to get a driver's license, I had months and months and months of practice and got tested rigorously. Then we made a human being. No one's given us training and you're saying we're ready to go out the door. You feel incompetent because largely you are. And you know it. But our culture says you are the supreme being of your own life. And we feel good about that. That's how it ought to be. Again, I'm not trying to be sarcastic at all because obviously that sentence could be finished with how dumb. I'm not trying to say I'm just trying to say it can't work. You cannot have a room full of eight super, 80 supreme beings with different wills and end with a united, healthy society. So let's move on. I think, I think we get it. So on the one end, you've got an emotional argument that clings to individualism and points to non-judgmentalism. And so you, you have what sometimes sounds ridiculous when you say something and they say, I feel like you're judging me. That's a, that's a cultural thing to say. You're not allowed to do that. You have to be quiet. I don't like it. But on the other side, we have the argument that's intellectual and reasonable and logical and, and it has no emotion. And so there's lots of sarcasm and... Words, you know, if you go watch the YouTube clips, people are regularly called idiots. You know, there's no dignity of humanity in that. Even if the, the reasoning and the logic is right, there's got to be some compassion for what people are struggling with. All right. Um, so how do we find our way in this? Well, we have to turn to Jesus. Um, so let's look at Jesus' good news and his example. I think Jesus can understand something of the argument or the discussion that we're in at the moment. Um, and I think Jesus can really understand gender dysphoria. Because uh, if you think about it, um, if you could just go to the slide, Jesus became what he was not 
to rescue us from what we were. Jesus, creator of the heavens and the earth, creator of the cosmos, becomes human. John 1.3 says, By him all things were made. There is, our minds cannot fathom the intellect of Jesus, the ability of Jesus, the capacity of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus. We cannot understand that Jesus became human flesh. That Jesus, creator of the cosmos, became a zygote. The Bible doesn't say he became a zygote. It just says he, he grew into Mary's womb. But I assume it was through the same way all of us were made. In other words, he wasn't born a 33-year-old man. He wasn't born a teenager. He, Mary didn't give birth a moment after she uh, became pregnant. So I assume we can just as, go, say that his conception happened the same way as everyone else's does. And he was sewed into Mary's womb. And that he had, to, he, he had to journey through the fallopian tube to the uterus wall. His cells had to divide. That it turned into skin and organs and brain, a brain. Luke says that Jesus had to grow. He says Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, in favor with man. Can you see how odd that is that the creator of the cosmos, all things are made in him and through him and for him. And another disciple says, and he grew up in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, in favor with man. It's impossible for him to grow. All things grow through him and in him and for him. And he becomes something he's not and has to grow like the rest of us, for us, to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us. So I think it's fair to say that Jesus has a good idea about... Uh, feeling a disconnection in the human experience. Many of us feel disconnections. Many, many, many young men talk about themselves as though they once were elite athletes. Here's, here's the hot tip. Almost none of them would have ever been elite athletes. But in their minds, that was their destiny and their future. They just chose not to, not to ever fulfill it. <laughs> That's the dissonance between who you are and what you can be. The rest of us, I mean, I'm one of those. Success, intelligence, you know, arguments. You're in a conversation with someone, you have no courage to tell them a truth that you believe in, but then you go away and you tell someone else, because it's much easier to have courage then. There's a, there's a dissonance between the real courage you have and the fake courage you have when it doesn't matter. We experience a disconnect all the time in our feelings, in our thoughts, in our bodies. I'm not in any way trying to minimize the disconnection we, we, we're particularly talking about today and the people who experience a dissonance between their biological sex and their gender. That must be incredibly painful. But I am trying to say, don't you think that you're better or different? Don't me think, because there's ways in which um, I'm not fully, fully honest about who I am. As a human, Jesus had to eat. 
He had to stay warm. He had to get rest. He had to learn how to speak a language. He had to learn a trade. He had to provide for his family. He was misunderstood. He had to deal with enemies. He had to wash. He had to suffer. None of these were things that the creator of all things would naturally experience. He became what he wasn't so that we could become what we are not. Think about it this way. There's a TV show. I don't know what it's called, and I don't think I've ever watched it. So if you have, then, then forgive me if I've got it wrong. But I think the premise is fairly simple, and, and this is where I hope I didn't get it wrong. There's a boss that a boss becomes like a, an employee. He, like a, he's on a low level. So let's say it's, I don't know, a, a food chain. So he, he goes from being the owner of the food chain to he comes and works on the till or something or sweeps the floor or whatever, so that he can interact with his employees on an egalitarian level, same, same level. And then he gets to see, and I think what happens, my guess is that you probably promote some and rebuke others through, as you observe. You probably go, you're an amazing employee. We, you're exactly who we want. We're going to get you to the higher ranks. And there's probably some others that are like, we don't want you representing us. We need to weed you out. That's my guess. But, but at no point have they lost their income. Have they lost their status? Have they lost their power? Have they lost their position? Whenever they feel like it, and when the TV cameras stop uh, filming, they just go back to their position. Jesus is different in that he came from the highest position in, in all of the cosmos, entered into creation, not at the lowest position, just at the position of humanity, which is the highest position in creation. He enters position of humanity, and now for all eternity, he's still in human form. He never returns to his position he had before. He's raised to life as someone, someone who they, uh, they recognized. As, they didn't say, what are you? At times the disciples said, who are you? Because they, they, the Holy Spirit wasn't allowing them to recognize Jesus as Jesus. But no, not once is it recorded, what are you? We've never seen something like you. But who are you? Or Thomas, it's like, I don't know if you're Jesus. It wasn't like because your body is weird. He didn't even say because you walked through a wall. He said, I just don't know if you're him. And Jesus showed the, the, the scars, the wounds in his body. That convinced Thomas, oh, you are the Christ. You are Jesus. So he's not the boss that like just put on human flesh for 33 years. And it's like, you know, in eternity, 33 years is not a real big deal. Why is it such a big deal? Because he's put on human forever. He's put on humanity. He will, God in the flesh will never leave humanity. He's stuck with us. And he sits at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us and advocates for us. What a blessing. But I think Jesus can understand people that don't feel fully connected. The way Jesus deals with his dissonance and dysphoria is a way that um, I think we can follow. You know, we see Jesus in a moment of his greatest pain. And, and before that, there's been a great celebration, a Passover meal. But for Jesus, there's no celebration. Have you ever felt that? Everyone else is celebrating around you, but you're going through some real struggles. You're depressed. But, but people might say, you've got no reason to be. Come on, Jesus, this is like we're having this meal together. Why are you so depressed? I'm not saying he was depressed at the meal. I'm just saying there was other things going on. They worship after the meal. 
They raise their voices to God, but his mind's racing. They've been working hard. It's time to rest. They fall asleep. They even fall asleep outside. Those of you who like camping, you would have loved following Jesus. You just sleep wherever. And they were so tired, they just fell asleep. They kept falling asleep. Jesus can't fall asleep. He, he's in turmoil. All he can do is pray. Have you ever felt like that? Everyone else seems to be fine, but, but you on the inside, you're really struggling. Jesus gets it. Everyone looks on the outside and says, no, you're, you're okay. It's not hard. And, and you're wrestling through difficult things on the inside that no one seems to understand. Jesus gets it. And then he goes into the garden and he shows us exactly what to do. He says, Father, if it, if this, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup re- representing the wrath of God that was going to be spent against him on, the cross of, of, on his cross against the sins of humanity. If it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. He shows us three things. One, he answers the question, who has the right to tell me what to do? In our culture, who has the right to tell me what to do? Me. Yeah? We had a a funny moment this morning because someone turned the heat up to like 3,000. And it was like a wall. You walked in from that that door and you're like, it was like, hot. No one wanted to own it. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. No, I had no part to play. I mean, someone did. we were just joking around. But there's that awkwardness of like, no, I don't want my choices to be imposing on other people's discomfort. Because I'm not supposed to tell you how you're supposed to experience things. You know? Um, but Jesus goes and he shows, he shows that God has authority. Father, can you take this cup from me? It's you decide. If it's possible, take this cup from me. You have authority. Who knows what is best for me to do? Knowledge. Who knows? What in our culture, who knows what's best for you? You. I'm doing I'm finishing my masters in counseling and we have been told about 3000 times, you are not um, the expert. You have the master's degree, you've read the books, you've studied this, you are not the expert of people. Who is the expert? The client. I still can't figure out the answer to this one question I still have. Why are they coming to us and calling us counselors if our job is, our only job is to not counsel? Why don't they just call us listeners? Or mirrors that are going to reflect your words back to you just so that you can tell us if, you've, if we've heard you correctly. Our culture says you are the expert of your life. No one can tell you what to do. Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, you know, only you know. I know what I want, but I'm not sure it's possible with, if it aligns with what you want. If it's possible. That talks about knowledge. It's submitted to God. Number three, who loves me and wants what is best for me? In our culture, who loves me and wants what's best for me? Me. 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 Be committed to yourself. Who? <laughs> Do what's right for number one. Who's number one? You. <laughs> I know you all know this, but thanks for playing along as if it's new news. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. 
That's trustworthiness. That's love. To be able to ask someone that question, I will say that, not my will be done, but your will be done, means I trust your will more than I trust my will. That's amazing. So Jesus shows us the way. You, life won't always make sense. You won't always uh, be happy with what's going on in your life. You may not even feel like yourself inside of your own life. There may be limitations you experience. You may be challenges you experience. You may feel like something else. You may have longings that you know Scripture teaches against. You may have temptations that Scripture says are very wrong. And instead of just pursuing them because you're the expert of your life, you can follow Jesus' example and fall to your knees and say, Father... If it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. In other words, Father, I trust you, you love me, you know all things, and you are the authority. Teach me how to obey you. So our longing to be fully ourselves can only be satisfied through Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this is an invitation and a promise to hope. It's, a, it's an invitation that needs to sound good to all of us. A new cre- we are new creations. The old has co- gone, the new has come. Anyone who struggles in, in any way, sickness, suffering, disability, dissonance, dysphoria, there's this promise. The old has is, 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 um, gone, the new has come. It's not fully come. The Bible says clearly, that the complete new will only be here when Jesus returns. But Jesus has won the day and the new has begun. It's come. It's begun. The day has dawned. You are no longer labeled, um, you know, like to get a parking here, you have to have a handicapped thing in your car. Otherwise, you'll get a fine if you handicapped and you park, but you don't have the, the sticker. So it's kind of like a label. Everyone leave this person alone. They're handicapped. You have, no, you have no handicapped sticker before God. You may be still stuck in a handicapped body, but God has already declared you well. He already knows what He's going to do with you. And you know what it is? Fully restored, fully redeemed, fully healed, fully made whole. Is there a journey between where you're at and there? Of course. But in the wonderful eyes of our Father, you are not a limping, labeled problem. There's no one in, in human history who's experienced greater dissonance uh, than Jesus. Uh, and, I, and I want to say dysphoria than Jesus. Listen to what he said when he was crucified on, this cross, on the cross. Father, why have you forsaken me? Anyone that's ever said to God, why have you made me this way? Why have you left me with this struggle? Why is there this problem? Jesus gets it. On the cross, dying for the sins of the world. Father, why have you forsaken me? He understands. The pain, the trust, to trust in pain. Dying on the cross, he cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's like anyone who's suffering and struggling and trying to work life out. He goes, Father, why have you forsaken me? Father, why have you uh, made me this way? But I commit my life into your hands. 
but I will follow you, but I will seek to obey you, but I will seek to uh, grow in following your spirit, in walking with you, but I will open your word and teach what it says about me and I will choose to believe it. And maybe my experience and my faith don't line up, but I look forward to when they do. And I know your word is truth. And the thing that will change is my experience. My experience you will bring into alignment with your word. Your word will not fail. I choose to believe your word. It's not what I experience. But I know experience will bow to what you have said. I know what you will do. And let me just wrap it up. I know it's been a long one. How do you not cover a lot of things in this debate? Number three. How can the church express courage and compassion? I'm just going to give us four ways. And um, the list could go on. But I just think four things we can think about. Number one. We need to be careful not to promote cultural masculinity and feminine, feminine stereotypes. You know, the idea that like all real men will want to watch sports. That's an unnecessary stereotype. It's not true. And it's unhelpful. Because any man who doesn't want to watch sports might feel less of a man. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests Jesus enjoyed watching sports. And as you become more like Jesus, because that's the goal of every Christian man, it may not be that you love sports anymore. You may actually care less about sports as you become more of a Christ-like man. Or a real man works 60 hours a week to provide for his family. Well, there's some truth there. A, a, a man does seek to provide for those around him. Brothers, sisters, parents, neighbors. There is something. Jesus... Jesus' model for us was to provide. The disciples go to him every time there's a need. You know, that's interesting. When the disciples have a need, they don't go somewhere else for it. Part of Jesus' makeup was that they trusted he wanted to provide for them. We're hungry. People are hungry. They need food. We know you don't have any, but what are we going to do? There's something in his makeup that gave them confidence that he desired to provide stuff like food. As we become more Christ-like men, that might be something we care more about. But that won't make us workaholics. Or, I, I think it's okay to say this still, maybe it's too late, dull bludgers. All right, no one reacted, so it's okay. <laughs> that, that term, I haven't heard that word in at least a decade. I don't even know if there's a thing anymore. Okay, so we need to get rid of some stereotypes. And, and woman, as you become more like Christ, because you're not becoming like someone else, True femininity is finding your identity in Christ and being formed. The Bible says Holy Spirit is going to make you more Christ-like and your femininity will be found in becoming more like Christ. And what that means. And that's quite exciting. And that means, just for example, that not every woman who becomes more like Christ, more and more like Christ, suddenly, magically wakes up and finds that they just love cooking. There will be women who become more and more and more like Christ. Being around them will be like being with Jesus. The fragrance of Christ is all over them and they don't like cooking. It's an unhelpful stereotype. Does that mean... Let, let me say what probably is true though. 
is that they long to nurture the people around them. They long to care for the people around them. They long to look after the people around them. But that doesn't mean they long to take the pots and pans out and put the ingredients in and make a meal. There's something much more meaningful than food. So get rid of unnecessary stereotypes. Masculinity is still a thing. Femininity is still a thing. Made whole in Christ. But let's get rid of all the kind of unnecessary hogwash. That's part of it. Number two, gender dysphoria is not sinful, but remember it is painful. So if someone here today, you were born a, a male or female, but you feel not like that in your body, you need to hear from the church all the time, that is not a sin. Doing your will in accordance with that is a sin. But the pain and the suffering you experience is not a sin and it is painful and it's okay to share that pain. It's right to share that pain and you should find brothers and sisters who embrace your pain and your suffering and walk with you and love you and pray with you. Number three. The great command that we have is to love our neighbor. The church should be the most welcoming community in the whole earth. Absolutely most welcoming community. If a person struggling with this today walks into the church, they should feel more loved here than any other place in the world. And I'm, I said love, not agreed with. We don't forsake truth to love. The only way you can truly love someone is to cling to truth. But also compassion. Number two, there should be no partiality in the church. James writes, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what you're talking about. You're doing well. Well done. Excellent. Hopefully King's Cross is doing that. Well done. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. <laughs> Thanks, James. So think about that. A person struggling walks through that door to enter the church and they're obviously struggling. You don't know them, but it's, all, it's obvious that they're, they're wrestling with themselves. And through the other door, uh, Andrew Forrest walks in. And they both walk in at the same time and you can meet one of them and become friends with one of them. Who, who, do you, who are you drawn towards? A person struggling walks in. And Hugh Jackman walks in. Chris Hemsworth walks in. <laughs> what I'm trying to show us, the problem with scriptures is the... the uh, thank you, Mona. The, the, the scriptures are so clear that it's easy to align ourselves with the truth of them, but that doesn't mean that's where our hearts are at. And Mona expressed what is true of all of us, probably. Hopefully some of you it's not true. Hopefully some of you there is literally no partiality in your heart. But that's what James is saying, is that as you become like Christ and love people as Christ does, you will discover that you have no partiality left. That the question I just presented to you really makes no sense. I don't know what Mark's getting at. What he said was two people walk into the room. Who do you want to meet? 
Why, any, any one of them. I don't get it. The problem is, we, at the moment, most of us still get it. I, I really, as the gospel shapes our community, this is one of the longings of my heart. I, I hope I say this with grace, not with threat. And I, I'm not sure which one I'm saying it with. That the longing of my heart is that as the rich and the famous walk into the church and the broken and the poor, in other words, the extremes of our society, walk into the church, that no one can tell who they are by the way they are treated in the church. Lastly, point number four, the church must continue to proclaim Jesus' truth with Jesus' compassion. Jesus will redeem all kinds of dysphoria and dissonance. If, let me just say, if someone walks in the room and they have uh, gone through all the medical processes to change their biological body to the degree that we are able to through surgery, and so someone born a male is now a woman uh, through surgery, walks into this church. Here's my question. Can they be accepted here? Can they be loved here? Can they become a member of this church? Can they take communion with their brothers and sisters? Can they put their faith in Jesus? Is the only possible way for them to re-undo all surgery? Is that when we'd be happy to accept and love and walk with them? Or are we happy when their faith turns to Jesus. Truly. They truly put their faith in Jesus. They recognize what they've done is wrong, is a sin. That's why they need Jesus. They repent. I'll give you, I'll give you the answer. Here's the answer. It comes in two parts. Here's my answer. It's not the answer. Here's my answer. Number one, unless we're going to tell everyone to go undo every sin they've ever done, when they've come to Jesus, then we must be very careful about telling people to undo sins they've, they've done. But that doesn't necessarily speak into, but then what is wise? There's still wisdom to undo some things. I'm not giving it away on this thing. But for example, if there were a, a gay couple got were married and came into this church and they became followers of Jesus there is probably wisdom to call them to live in obedience in their relationship to each other as they follow Jesus and in their sexual relationship. And, as, and I think it would be wise and faithful and truth-upholding to ask them to separate and to follow Jesus like everyone else. Not to, let's pretend you never got married. It happened. But that now needs to part ways. That now needs to be undone. And we don't say it like this. Because in the eyes of God, it was never recognized anyway. So it means nothing. It's said with compassion. In the eyes of God, you're called uh, to, to obey Jesus, to walk with Jesus. And this is wrong. And it needs to stop. So all I'm trying to do is give an example of how do we wisely call people to obedience and truth? without making ourselves, without, you know, just unwind the clock so I feel more comfortable. Jesus will redeem 
you know, those three things we saw in the table, the three discussions around gender. Jesus will redeem destiny. Jesus will redeem relationships. Jesus will receive, redeem our identities. So the person who struggles with gluttony or body image or racism or sexism or ageism or poverty or the person who can't hide from their fame or the person who has been labeled a, um, uh, what do they call them, a sex offender or the person who's stuck in jail or the person who should be stuck in jail but they've never been caught and they live in guilt and shame. All people that put their faith in Jesus will find their destinies, um, their relationships, and their identities fully restored in Jesus one day. All of us. And that's the hope. The church should be the most surprisingly wonderful place for people to come, whoever they are, to be curious and to find Jesus, to be accepted but to find people who are courageous and compassionate to speak truth. Let me pray.